Welcome to episode 21 of the Underground Christian Podcast, the sensible Christian resource for sensible Christians. Last time, we ended with a question, are we going to defend Christian borders? I asked that question because they assiduously defend theirs. That's the word of the day, assiduously. Some of you are probably wondering what I mean by Christian borders. Well, I don't mean land borders because Christians don't have any of those. Governments have them, but not Christians, because, as Jesus said long ago, his kingdom is not of this earth. Not yet, anyway. So Christians are not to go around planting flags and claiming land for the divine crown, but we are to do something. We are to appeal to and recruit volunteer converts and escort them into Christ's kingdom from the land-based kingdoms they come out of, increasing the membership of the church. And once they're there, we are to nourish, support, and strengthen our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. We attract converts by following Christ's instructions that we be clearly and easily distinguishable from the members of Satan's sprawling worldly kingdom. That means as individuals and as a group, we are to exhibit characteristics that the world does not normally exhibit. Since they are born of, operate by, and work for evil, John 8:44, being different requires us to push back against the evil that emanates from the world. We are to fight evil because it harms humanity and reviles God and his creation. Paul said it best in Ephesians 6.12 where he wrote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wrestle, struggle, fight, battle, it's all the same idea. We're in a war a great spiritual war that is being waged between the forces of Satan, which we call the world, and the forces of Christ, which we call the church. If you've been following along in this podcast, you know that when I use the term world, I'm not talking about the earth and the things on the earth, but the organized social, political, economic, and military system that has been constructed to advance the agenda of Satan. The world, in that context, is under Satan's control and is at his disposal. The church, in essence, has stormed an enemy beachhead, and, like all wartime beachheads, it is being heavily contested by the enemy. We have to fight to take every inch we control and fight to keep what we've taken. Yet fighting the world is not as straightforward as it may seem. The Bible instructs that we should not fight as worldly people fight, but rather as we have been taught by Jesus. He, Jesus, described one such fighting tactic in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45, where it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There are two reasons for this seemingly odd commandment. The first reason is practical. Loving our enemy appeals to their desire for compassion and kindness. Almost everyone loves compassion towards them and kindness directed to them. An age-old adage is that you get further by offering honey than vinegar. Or to put it more biblically, the best way to win unbelievers to Christ is to love them with an agape love and not hate them with venom and violence. But the second reason is strictly spiritual. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Nowhere in scripture is the phrase created man in his own image strictly defined. 
Some people get very creative with this phrase, but the important element is that there is something special and unique about human beings that warrants God granting individuals a special status and position. We are not God and ever will be, but we are loved by God enough that he wrote down a few universal laws to govern human behavior, and to illustrate their unchangeable permanence, he did it in stone. Those laws are called the Ten Commandments. They are all the law we need to construct a proper and righteous civilization. In comparison with the libraries of law and regulations that have been written by human authors here in America, much less across the rest of the world, God is pretty concise in his wordage. In fact, all Ten Commandments are not even needed to encapsulate what is needed for godliness and holiness in our relationships with one another. A mere two will do. That point was summarized beautifully by Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Okay, I didn't need to start back at verse 34, but I like to include some context to these bits of scripture. From the start of his ministry, Jesus had to battle the world in Judaism, which in those days was represented by two principal groups, the Sadducees, who were the worldly pragmatic liberals, and the Pharisees, who were the devout rule-following conservatives. They hated each other intensely, not unlike liberals and conservatives do today, but they had a common loathing of Jesus that united them from time to time. The Pharisees were often accompanied by their partners in spiritual crime, the scribes, who were the lawyers of Jewish law. Scribes were members of both the Sadducee and Pharisee groups. So the man who asked Jesus the question was a scribe, one of the lawyers. Jesus, being viewed by both groups as an uneducated peasant, had never been accepted by the wealthy intellectual Jewish elite. They did not approve of those who did not meet their cultural expectation about rising to the level of religious leader and how it's done, and they were mystified how he could possibly know so much about the law, having spent no time in the Jewish rabbinic schools. But despite his scriptural knowledge, he did not attain to their level of education and professional accomplishments, and they did not wish to have him join their exclusive club. On that particular day, the scribe acted respectfully towards this populist rabbi as he sought to trap him in this test. But as usual, Jesus passed the test with ease. He reduced the entire law of Moses down to just two fundamental principles. We have a responsibility to love God with our whole being, while at the same time we have a responsibility to love our neighbor as ourselves. That second commandment demands that we do for our neighbor whatever we would do for ourselves. That is the origin of the Christian golden rule. Now, there are some who claim that the golden rule was copied by the Christians and actually originated much earlier in other cultures, such as China and even ancient Egypt. See Wikipedia for a brief fact check on it. The difference is that Christ's commandment was a huge step above the golden rule as it was practiced by the surrounding nations. Their version essentially meant that we should show each other respect and extend a helping hand when we could. That is the world's standard today. That is not, however, what Jesus said. 
He said, agape your neighbor as you would agape yourself. That means to sacrificially do what is in the highest and best interest of your neighbor as you would always do whatever you perceive to be in your own highest and best interest. As usual, Jesus ratcheted up the requirement from doing something nice to your neighbor, or in contrast, not doing something unpleasant, to lavishly extending ebullience in meeting other people's needs. Naturally, the world elects to misuse the golden rule by placing it above the most important commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Most people evaluate others based first on the way they treat other people and a distant second on how they treat God. That permits them to love their neighbor by affirming their neighbor's rebellion against God or their acts that offend God and still feel righteous in the process. Properly implemented, the second commandment can never contradict the requirements of the first commandment. That places an entirely different emphasis on the rule's application. But Jesus said something even more revolutionary than that. He said, all the rest of the law of Moses is based on these two ideas. Everything about the law, every single rule, ordinance, and statute hangs on the requirements of the first two commandments. This requirement of God is universally true in every society on earth, no matter what the human laws say. God is the lawmaker and the law enforcer, and these are the standards that God enforces to. Do you meet your neighbor's needs with the same enthusiasm and to the same degree and extent you meet your own needs? Do you meet all your neighbor's needs that way? No one can answer yes truthfully to that question because everyone has a sin nature that prevents it. We always look out for ourselves first, and maybe with a little bit of our surplus, we look out for our neighbors. Which brings up another question. Who is our neighbor? Surely Jesus recognizes some limitations to who qualifies as our neighbor. Well, that question occurred to another lawyer in Luke 10.25. So he asked the question directly to Jesus. Just who is my neighbor? That precipitated Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me summarize what happened in the parable. After a Jewish man was mugged and left for dead, two holy Jewish Jewish men, right, these, are, these are religious people, chose to mind their own business and they moved on past him without helping. But an enemy of the Jews, a Samaritan, saw the Jewish man and felt compassion. He bandaged up his wounds, poured expensive liquid on the sores, placed him on his ride, and walked him to the nearest inn for safekeeping. Now, inns in those days were known to be run by almost virtual robbers, but he gave the man the equivalent of two days' wages at 12 hours per day, by the way. In modern terms, that's about four to $500. And then he said he would repay the innkeeper whatever else he spent taking care of the man. Considering who he was talking to, a kind of unscrupulous innkeeper, that bill could have easily been run up pretty high. So how many strangers have you treated that way? How many people that you consider an enemy have you generously supported in their need? This was not his next-door neighbor we're talking about. It was not one of his co-workers at work. It was a total stranger who he just happened to cross the path of. That's what Jesus meant by love your neighbor as yourself. If any of us get into a serious state of need, we will spend whatever resources we have to meet that need. And that's how we are to treat total strangers. Now, no one does that, and that's the point. 
No one meets God's standards and therefore no one deserves to enter the kingdom of God. These are not lofty ideals that God has suggested we try to meet. It is a law that he expects us to obey, and we are expected to obey it every time, without exception. And we haven't even gotten to the greatest commandment of all yet. God is compassionate, but he is also just. The compassion of God does not erase the justice of God or injustice would prevail. Lawbreakers must be held to account. We all want to be let off despite our offenses, but we also want the guilty people to be punished. And don't say you don't want guilty people to be punished because you're lying if you do. You might be willing to let some guilty people go free depending on what offense they're guilty of committing, but there are other offenses you would not be willing to forget, so just personalize it a little bit. Just because you don't find an offense against God significant does not mean that God sees it the same way. And God can't let offenders go because that would set the precedent for offenders to be set free, which would do more to encourage offending and not less. But most important of all, offenders are rebels against God, and God is the king of kings. God is authority. He doesn't just represent it. Rebellion against a sovereign human king warrants a death sentence. How much more a rebellion against God? That's exactly what Paul said. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus paid the debt we owe to God by dying on the cross. He didn't die because men wanted him dead. He died because that was the plan of redemption all along. Jesus said so in John 10, 7-18. Therefore, he said, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. That is the only reason Christians get to spend an eternity with God. That offer is open to everyone on the earth, but only through Jesus Christ as our Lord. We need to submit to his authority as the one who paid our debt, are you not willing to submit to Christ? Then the free gift is not offered. You will pay the penalty for your sins, and the penalty is not just your physical death. The penalty is eternal, and that means the punishment is unending. Physical death is not extinction. It is just the beginning of sorrows for the unrepentant, Christ-denying, unforgiven sinner. Now that's fair, because you're offered eternal forgiveness through Jesus Christ. If you know about Christ and you turn that down, you still get eternity. It's just you get it without him and the benefits that go with him. That sad little detour takes us back to the battleground. The sins we commit separate us from God, and the only hope we have in a future with God is by allying ourselves with Jesus Christ and opposing the world that is run by Satan. It should be a simple, straightforward, rational loss-benefit analysis. But it turns out not to be quite so simple or straightforward because the battleground of this spiritual war is in our minds. Satan's objective is to win in our minds in order to get a foothold in our hearts for the purpose of capturing or keeping our souls. The actual aggressors are several categories of spirit entities which are fallen angels and demons, which may not be the same thing, by the way. 
Paul helpfully lists their titles to help us understand their roles in our lives. They are principalities, powers, rulers, and hosts. This is Satan's army of highly intelligent and capable spirit beings that are organized in a strictly hierarchical order that mimics the human hierarchy of governmental authorities. Or perhaps it's the other way around. Maybe the governmental authorities mimic the spirit hierarchy. Either way, these spirit entities have the power to influence the behavior of people who make themselves susceptible to them in a process called oppression. Oppression is a deliberate attack of a demon against a human host to obtain influence over the mind and heart of the host. To be successful, a demon needs to obtain a spiritual foothold in the soul of a person. A foothold is an unrepentant, unforgiven, and practiced sin that creates a weakened spiritual condition through which the demon can penetrate. Think of it as a spiritual wound, the spirit equivalent of a flesh wound. All kinds of nasty things can enter through a flesh wound and take hold in the body. Things like bacteria, viruses, mold, fungi, worms, and other nasty microscopic unseen organisms. These parasites feed on the physical body, sickening the person in the process. In the same way, demons are spiritual parasites that enter the human body to feed off the soul, sickening the spirit in the process. Their importance and commensurate rank determines the person they are assigned to attack. The highest-ranking demons, which are fallen angels, are called principalities as an acknowledgement that they are assigned to influence and perhaps control the highest-ranking human authorities, which in the past were kings and princes. Jesus is the prince of heaven, and Satan is the prince of hell. Both derive their authority from the king of the universe, Father God, there is one lawgiver, says James 4.12. And kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations, according to Psalm 22.28. So the principalities are the highest spiritual authorities and they derive their authority from God. Next come powers, which in the human world we might call governors. Then come rulers, which are perhaps equivalent to our cabinet level, level leaders. And last are the hosts, the mass of bureaucratic rulers who oversee and implement the rule-writing process and enforce the rules that affect every aspect of our lives. Paul uses this governmental comparison because the spirit authorities wield real power over human souls, just as the human authorities wield real power over our bodies. But there are only so many demons and fallen angels, and they are not gods, so they can't be everywhere at once. They are confined to the same space-time that we are, so they focus their attention on the most influential and powerful people to help them spread their destruction and influence as far and wide as possible. They leave it up to everyday temptations to lure the bulk of humanity into their numerous traps. Fallen angels and demons prefer to keep a low profile most of the time, at least in Western nations, since it provides a kind of camouflage for their activities. As a culture, we are obsessed with science and technology, which makes it difficult for most people to accept the reality of angels and demons, but especially demons. I mean, some people, they like angels, you know, good angels and stuff, so you know, demons are harder to grasp. It doesn't help that our political and scientific leaders encourage this kind of thinking. Fortunately, their allies, the influential Hollywood elites, are not very good at keeping spiritual secrets, and they tend to let them leak out. 
especially when they showcase their occult interactions, and we can learn from them. Shows like Bewitched, Charmed, Eastwick, The Craft, The Exorcist versions 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, and of course, the ever-popular Harry Potter series, all try to spin the occult in a fun and entertaining way while placing particular emphasis on the art of witchcraft. That effort continues up to today in the form of a relatively new TV show titled Lucifer, which premiered on Fox, just in case you're under the misimpression that Fox is somehow on the side of Christians. Lucifer depicts Satan as a kind of cool guy, the neat friend you always wanted to have. That perception of Lucifer might explain why so many Hollywood and music industry stars regularly immerse themselves in occult practices. They have placed their allegiances in all the wrong places. Most of them, while profiting handsomely from their connections, sound somewhat less than enthusiastic about their occult involvements once they have experienced them a while. Let's hear a little bit about what they have to say. These sound bites come courtesy of DaysForTruth.com via Richie from Boston on BitChute. Advanced language warning, I have no control over the language some of these people choose to use. They say what they say. You may want to skip ahead if there are sensitive ears around. You know, in, in Hollywood and in the industry and the stuff we do, there's a lot of like insider secrets to keeping your career going. Tell you facts. Hear it. This industry is not what it seems to be. Listen, this is a rapper. You got 200 followers. I bet you there's rappers in here right now that can rap way better than you. You can't. You can rap way better than me. You will never be where I'm at because this industry is rigged. It's rigged. The whole idea of celebrity and fame has become really convoluted. I've been saying now in this podcast that Satan runs the world. Twice Jesus said that Satan is the ruler of this world. Once in John 12, 31-32, and again in John 14, 30. In Ephesians 2, Paul told the young Christians, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Satan, the spirit, is called a prince, and the most senior members of his court are the principalities. He is called the Prince of the Power of the Air, a very famous but mysterious title that we will likely revisit in more detail in a later episode. But for a quick idea of the meaning of that phrase, consider how these entertainers influence so many people and how they reach their audiences. Their music and performances are broadcast through the airwaves and across the internet via electronic transmissions. It is power through the air. They hold concerts and staged events in large auditoriums with powerful speaker systems, light shows, and pyrotechnic displays, the music and voices reverberating through the air. For its candor and honesty about the occult elements of modern entertainment, I love the interview that took place in 2004 on 60 Minutes when Ed Bradley interviewed Bob Dylan about his career. During the interview, Bob had some interesting things to say about the source of his fame and fortune. Why do you still do it? Why are you still out here? Well, it goes back to the destiny thing. I, mean, I made a bargain with it, you know, a long time ago, and I'm holding up my hand. What was your bargain? To get where um, I am now. Sh should I ask who you made the bargain with? <laughs> with, 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 you know, with the chief, uh, chief commander. 
on this earth <laughs> and in this earth and in, uh, and then in the world we can't see you ever look at music that you've written and look mm -hmm. back at it and say whoa that mm -hmm. surprised me i used to uh I, I, i don't do that anymore uh i don't know how i got to, to write those songs what do you mean you don't know how well those early songs were like almost magically written um Uh, darkness at the break of noon, shadows even the silver spoon, a handmade blade, a child's balloon. Eclipses both the sun and moon to understand you knew too soon there is no sense in trying. Bob selected an interesting choice of words here when he described his deal-making partner. He said he made a deal not with him or her, or even a Z, but with an it. Now, what kind of a deal do you make with an it? If you get a chance to watch the interview, watch Bob's facial expressions and eyes when he talks about this event. It's a bit haunting. These celebrities know the truth of the spiritual battle that's taking place because they have been positioned on the front line of the war in exchange for fame and fortune. They are soldiers of fortune, but unfortunately, they work for the wrong side. They are just idols of power for the blind and deaf and dumb. I sold my soul to the devil. I know it's a crappy deal. Lisa came with a few toys like a happy meal. Yeah, well, sometimes they don't want to, and they're, you know, Gaga, we can't get, you know, the, the frequency's weird, and, you know, it's sounding a little bit strange, and I'm like, if you don't get this right now, I swear to Lucifer, I'm gonna. Did I sell my soul? I sold my soul for you. Now, figure that out. Tell my dad, I sell my soul. I sold my soul for you. For all you motherfuckers that's on here, that's asking me that I sell my soul, why the fuck is y'all on here if y'all think I sell my soul? Y'all coming right with me, you dummies. I've seen so many people, like, forsake their 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 moral code and their value systems just for a little bit of fame, and it's, it's not worth it at the end of the day. It's really not worth it. In the music industry, it's still very much this exploitative thing. It's still very much people sure. signing their life away, you know, the old deal with the devil stuff. That is still going on. It's unbelievable in this day and age that is, that is still going on. So one night I was in my home studio, and it had to be like eight to ten people off in there. And um, we had beats and stuff playing in the, in the background and everything. That's how we used to do it, you know what I'm saying? Everybody doing what they do, smoking, drinking and everything. And actually, it came down to it that dudes actually started being used by demonic spirits. And these spirits started speaking through them, you know what I'm saying? Devils started speaking through them, talking to me, asking me, you know what I'm saying, if I was going to sell my soul, telling me what I needed to do to take my career to the next level in darkness. I mean, dudes actually came up to me holding wads of money, saying, man, don't you want to make all this money? You stupid bitch. You talking about my beads, devil worshiping beads. Cool, you hear me? But if you're a Christian, your Bible says you're supposed to love God, your neighbor, yourself, and your enemy. So if you, you're commanded to love me if I want to serve the devil. Are you a hypocrite? Jesus once said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, selling your soul may seem like a good idea when you're young, but as the years build and you draw closer to that inevitable day on earth when you leave, the deal will seem to get worse and worse. The sad part is that these people could still repent if they really wanted to. Bob Dylan is living the lie by needlessly keeping up his end of the bargain, for which he will pay an eternal price if he does not repent. Lastly, I want to play two more short clips. 
One is a very brief clip of Katy Perry, and one is a slightly longer clip of Nicki Minaj. Let's start with Katy. When I was 15, um, because I grew up in uh, you know, a household where all I ever did was listen to gospel music, and my parents are both traveling ministers, and so I kind of sang about you know, what was going on in my life at 15, and that's how I got introduced to the music industry. I swear I wanted to be like the Amy Grant of music, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't work out, and so I sold my soul to the devil. <laughs> okay, so you may not think she's being literal. Well, I believe she's being literal for many reasons, but based on that one short clip, I'll admit there is some room for doubt. But Nicki Minaj kind of takes that doubt away. Roman is a crazy boy who lives in me, and he says the things that I don't want to say. <laughs> he was born, you know, just a few months ago. I think he was born out of rage. He was conceived in rage, so he bashes everyone. He threatens to beat people, and he's violent. That must be nice to have, like, an ignorant loudmouth who you can just sort of blame every... He wants to be blamed. I don't want to blame him. I, I, I ask him to leave, but he can't. He's here for a reason. People have brought him out. People conjured him up. Now he won't leave. Now, it's true that Nikki has so many alter egos that she might legitimately be called a multiple personality, at least before the American Psychiatric Association eliminated it as a disorder. But her internal companion, Roman, exhibits all, or Roman, exhibits all the characteristics of a demon. And he has a very similar disposition to the invisible companion of Beyonce, or Beyonce, or whatever her name is. I guess I'm going to play one more clip. Sasha is my alter ego. And when people see me, sometimes I think that when they meet me and they speak with me, they're expecting Sasha. And um, I'm really kind of shy and not really shy, but more reserved and um, nothing like Sasha. But I guess I wouldn't be very entertaining on the stage. So Sasha comes out <laughs> and she's fearless. You know, she can she can do things that I cannot do when I'm in rehearsal. I mean, I can try, but then it just doesn't happen. I can sing notes and sing strong and do all these things that when I'm just by myself, I can't do. And I remember right before I performed, I raised my hands up and it was kind of the first time I, I felt something else come into me. And I knew that was going to be my coming out night for the BET Awards. Now, Beyonce and her protectors have downplayed this statement ever since she made it. But the fact remains that she said it unprovoked. In that moment, she was being honest. In her performances, she feels something enter her that is not her, and that something gives her the ability to perform in ways that she cannot perform just by herself. Those are her words. That is the definition of demonic possession. It isn't full possession, but that doesn't really matter because the demon gets everything it needs from her.
Not only do these stars cut monetary and professional deals with covert human Satanists, they allow their bodies to be used by covert demonic spirits. You just can't debase the human body much more than that. These are the weapons of the culture war that Satan has brought to bear against the church and against God, and they're extremely effective, having captivated the hearts and minds of so many people in the church. It's hard to avoid the conclusion that the modern church is just a host of individual churches that embrace a wide variety of diverse spiritual and moral beliefs. That should not be a surprise to anybody in the church because Jesus said that was going to happen. What outsiders don't understand is that there are actually two churches that were defined by Jesus. The first is called the ecclesia, or the called out ones. That's the true church, the one made up of Christ's followers, his true subjects. But there's also a much larger church universal, an assemblage of people who call themselves Christians and who may even believe themselves to be Christian, but who deny something important about Christ or the Godhead or the Bible or all three. Sometimes it's the divinity of Christ, but more often it's the inerrancy of the Bible or the lordship of Christ. And that last one is the biggest problem of all. These other Christians pride themselves on being just like the world, and they think Christ is like the world too. They reject the lordship of Christ as he defined it, because in their twisted view of Christianity, the Lord just accepts whatever it is they want to give. Jesus, in essence, follows them. It is next to impossible to differentiate those Christians from the world because they are immersed in the world and all its worldly interests. Some Christians feel drawn to a particularly charismatic leader, especially one who claims some special divine authority by virtue of a unique connection to Jesus Christ or to God. This uniqueness often involves one or more notorious and well-known heresies, but the old, dusty heresies are always new to some people. Some of these charismatic leaders claim to have received special revelations from God, or they have a special anointing, or mystical powers, or the gift of prophecy. Their own, of course, special prophecy. We call these kinds of churches cults, and the members cultists. Cults and wayward churches blend various amounts of Jesus into their teachings, but they are all united in one universal attribute. They emphasize the things about the world they want changed, and they use the church to change them. This is the universal, diverse church. Jesus told some parables about it. In Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, he related the parable of the wheat and the tares. I'll read it. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. When Jesus used the phrase, Kingdom of Heaven, he was referring to the church universal, not the ecclesia. Heaven refers to size, breadth, and complexity. So in this parable, a man, Jesus, 
planted some good seed, which symbolizes his called followers, the ecclesia. But an enemy, who is Satan, came along and sowed some tares in the same field, the field symbolizing the church universal or the kingdom of heaven. For those who may not know about this kind of agriculture, when wheat and tares first come up, they look nearly identical. It's impossible to tell them apart, but the tares are poisonous and are not supposed to be part of an agricultural field. So rather than destroy the good wheat with the evil tares, Jesus told his servants, the angels, to let them grow up together as one big happy church, and when the end of the age came, the difference would be apparent. You see, when tares mature, they form a bright red head, whereas the wheat forms a nice golden head. So it's easy to pick out the tares at the harvest. We can debate what the harvest is, but the idea is that the angels of Christ will separate the false followers from his true followers at some point. The true followers will enter his kingdom, and the false followers will be discarded as waste. And in the meantime, it's going to be really hard to tell them apart. It's about as blunt a point as Jesus could make. So what makes a Christian one or the other? Well, let's just say the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's a monarchy, and the members of the kingdom are its subjects. Jesus is looking for people who want to be in his kingdom, and that means people who want to be like Jesus because he is the model. You can't be like Jesus unless you submit to Jesus. The parable of the tares is not talking about the people of the world entering the kingdom of heaven because the field had to be planted. Christ is populating his kingdom with some homegrown people from the world. He followed this parable, in Matthew anyway, with two more parables about the kingdom of heaven from the perspective of the church universal. In the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus said, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Here, Christ planted the least of all the seeds, or the unlikely candidates for his kingdom. You couldn't get much more least than converted fishermen, tax collectors, and prostitutes. In 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul reiterated this point when he said, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. That means not many powerful, not many rich, not many important people are called. The mustard seed is the least of the seeds, being the smallest and least impressive. But that's where almost everyone fails with this parable. Normal mustard seeds do not grow up into giant plants. They grow up into little plants. That, of course, does not fit with the incorrect eschatological interpretation that the church is going to grow and grow and grow until it converts everyone on the earth to Christianity and then Jesus will come back and rule beside us, or something like that. To make that interpretation fit, theologians have searched high and low to find some giant mustard plant that might fit the description. That is called fitting the parable to a favored interpretation. Normal mustard plants are small, and what Jesus was describing was a monster plant. It was completely unrelated to a normal mustard plant, and that is what he thought about the church universal. It is a monster. It is so large and so inviting to the world that the birds come to nest in its branches. Birds in the Bible are almost never good symbols. They usually represent one of two things, defilement and sin, which is why they are sacrificed, 
or destruction that usually follows corruption and decay, like vultures to a meal. Neither of these things are desired in a church, much less in Christ's kingdom. They come to the church universal because it provides them with protection and allows them to form a base of operations. The universal church is not the ecclesia. It is a monster with its imposter leaders who fight for Satan. Beware of the false prophets, said Jesus in Matthew 7.15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, that would be as priests and pastors, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Jesus warned that the church would be infiltrated by leaders compromised to Satan, but that we could distinguish them by their fruits, which are the spiritual things they produce. These people are weapons of war that we can distinguish by the destruction they bring to Christ's kingdom and God's word. They operate similarly to the leaders in our government who are compromised to foreign interests and who work night and day to corrupt and undermine the United States from within. Jesus warned that the church universal would be compromised in another parable in Matthew 13:33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Leaven in the Bible is always representative of sin, since leaven is a contaminant. It produces carbon dioxide, which is what gives bread its volume and lightness. Jews were instructed by God to eat unleavened bread at Passover to symbolize the forgiveness and laying aside of sin. So in the parable, Jesus is warning that just a little sin that is hidden in the church is enough to contaminate and ruin the entire organization. And it's interesting that he said a woman hid it in the meal. We have an explosion of women church leaders today who are advocating serious doctrinal errors. That is not to say that there aren't plenty of men doing the same thing, but Jesus did point this out, thereby indicating that women would one day play an important role in corrupting the church universal. These infiltrators are weapons, and they are dangerous, and they are everywhere. I'm going to play the introductory remarks of a church pastor who has recently been celebrated in the national press for being a leader in the evangelical progressive church movement, a non-sequitur if ever there was one. I'm not going to play much of it because it literally makes me nauseous. Not that he is unskilled at what he does. It's nauseating because he is so skilled. He seamlessly blends scriptural truth with satanic lies, brewing a cauldron of confusion that is toxically seductive to the sinners he appeals to. And he does it effortlessly using Christian speak. As this is an audio platform, it's best for me to describe the opening scene. The pastor comes onto a stage where the musicians have just finished playing. And yes, it's an actual stage, complete with speakers, audio equipment, and lights. It looks like any mid-sized modern theatrical venue. He pulls up a stool and he sits facing the audience, presenting a very folksy casualness. If you've ever seen Joyce Meyer in one of her tours, it reminds me of that kind of stage performance. I'm going to play bits of this introduction and interrupt it with some commentary so that we can see how these people use the church and turn it into a weapon for Satan's use. Anybody, anybody else feel really just like a sense of sadness? sort of blanketing everything. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. You know, we're watching um, a war crime unfold in our world right in front of us uh, with what Vladimir Putin and Russia is doing in the Ukraine. We're watch like literally watching it happen on our televisions. 
We're watching the bankruptcy of human violence. He talks of war crimes from what Vladimir Putin is doing to Ukraine. This pastor either understands nothing about the situation in Ukraine, which I could easily believe, or he's doing the dirty work of Western nations by mimicking the propaganda of the West. As I pointed out in past episodes, Ukraine is run by neo-Nazis who have been murdering their own citizens, staging massacres to blame on Russia, and preventing their own citizens from fleeing the violence. They have emplaced military weapons, equipment, and soldiers in schools, in hospitals, and in neighborhoods, attacking Russian forces from those positions so that when Russia retaliates or engages their military, they can accuse the Russians of targeting civilians. Ukraine was heavily involved in developing biological weapons for the West, weapons that Putin believed were likely to be used against Russia. When the Soviet Union fell, NATO in general, and the United States in particular, guaranteed Russia that NATO would not expand up to its borders and then proceeded to expand up to its borders. This pastor is doing the propaganda dirty work of the West from inside a church. Why is that? And also, in our own country, um, we are dealing with news out of Texas, which is essentially an assault on trans kids. And uh, the one thing I've been hoping for is some people in the state of Texas and wherever else, because, you know, these, these sorts of laws are coming right here to Tennessee, too. They, they want to do these sorts of things here. We need some good civil disobedience. We need people who refuse to do the wrong thing. We need people to defend kids. Here he claims that laws which protect children from the transgender activists are harmful. These laws protect children from physical and chemical castration before they're mature enough to decide for themselves if they want to be castrated. They prevent invasive surgery that permanently removes reproductive and natural body parts while the child's mind is still developing and deciding what it will become. The laws prevent activist parents from corrupting and perverting the bodies God gave to their children, even if it can't protect the children's minds. Um, And so there's just so much heaviness in our world, so much suffering, so much loss, and and yet uh, our calling in in a sort of way is to be people of hope, not just sort of a, a blind, baseless hope, but a commitment to work to change the world. Um, And so that's the work we want to be about here at Grace Point. We want to be about the work of dealing with, speaking out against, mobilizing for, to combat issues of oppression and injustice wherever they may be. Yes, there is suffering and loss in the world, that's true. It's just not the kind of suffering and loss this pastor claims. Christians hope in Christ. This hope this pastor conjures up is hope in man and his ideas. Notice what he says the church is for for dealing with, speaking out against, mobilizing for, to combat issues of oppression and justice. Does that sound like a normal church plan? What is the difference between his plan and the plan of every progressive activist group on earth? Answer, nothing. They enter the church to weaponize it and turn it against godly righteousness, all while appealing to irrational emotionalism. Um, And so I thought today, um, we don't usually do this at the beginning, but I just want to just give us a moment to pause and catch our breath. Um, Today we're going to talk about the the death of Jesus. Um, 
another bummer uh, a little bit. So, I, you know, before we get into what that might mean, I feel like it's, let's just have a moment of clean, like a cleanse moment, a moment to reflect. I'll say a brief prayer and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Let's just take a minute. Today, he's going to talk about the death of Jesus and then he chuckles. Sometimes we just can't hold it in, apparently. But let's listen to this opening prayer. I want you to hear it and answer this question at the end. What did this pastor leave out? God, I'm, a, I'm aware that for me, that may be the most silence I've had in my life all week. And I'm sure that's true for others in this space and others watching, wherever they may be in the world. Recognize that we have members of our community right now who may be watching this, whether they're watching it live or whether they're watching it later, who live in Europe and who are deeply afraid right now, who are concerned for their neighbor's safety and their own safety. We live in a world where we have, instead of taking our creativity and resources and energy and creating um, new and creative ways to be healing, we have created bigger and bigger bombs. And so we just acknowledge the pain that has caused the world. We acknowledge the, the needless and senseless loss of life from this war happening uh, in this act of aggression between Russia and Ukraine and, and how this is what war does. This is what human sin, the way we've been talking about it, looks like. It's violence. So we don't ask you to be with anyone because that implies that you've not been with them. But we long for justice and healing and wholeness and liberation in this world. And we also long for that for folks right here in the United States, for the LGBTQ plus community who continually find themselves under assault in various states and districts across this country, for those in the BIPOC community who are still struggling for equality and equity in this country, and for all those who feel and who have been silenced and pushed to the margins. We just today acknowledge there's a lot of pain in the world. And we ask that somehow, in some small way, through our community and through our lives, change could begin to happen. We realize that maybe that change is just to begin with in our own backyard, and that's okay. We just need to start somewhere. So give us wisdom to know what to do, and then give us courage to actually do it. We offer this in hope and in gratitude, and everybody said, Amen. He mentions members of the community who are afraid for their safety. Really? He wants healing, but he doesn't mention what kind of healing he wants. I can tell you it's not the healing of Christ. He laments bombs, and I'll give him credit for that. But then he goes on to indirectly accuse Russia again by calling it an act of aggression. There is no mention of the multiple aggressions that America and NATO have brought against the whole world since the fall of the Soviet Union. America has killed more people in its wars around the world than Vladimir Putin could ever dream of killing in Ukraine. There is no mention of that. There's no mention of the bioweapons labs, the secret money deals, the weapons smuggling, the broken promises, the engineered regime changes, the covert murders, all by the West. Nope, just naked Russian aggression. Human sin, the way we have been talking about it, it's violence. That seems to be the focus of this sermon series. Sin is violence against human beings. That is another subtle twist of truth that is easy for people to embrace. It is twisted truth because sin is much more than violence against people, although violence against people can be sin. Sin, in the general sense, is rebellion against God, and that is what we need to combat. 
Included in that category is the way we treat people. He says, We long for justice and wholeness and healing and liberation. Those are words of a communist revolutionary rally. For the LGBTQ community, who continually find themselves under assault in various states and districts across the country, well, I wonder which states he's talking about. Could it be the conservative ones? He says the community continually finds itself under assault. I guess I must have missed where that is happening. I thought it was the rest of us who were under assault by his community and his supporters. He laments for those in the BIPOC community who are still struggling for equality and equity in this country. Class struggle, divide and conquer, these are classic communist strategies. He further laments for all those who have been silenced and pushed to the margins. I assume he means the conservatives and normal people who have been shadow banned, deplatformed, silenced, intimidated, threatened, physically attacked, and doxxed by the activists on the left. Through our community, change can begin to happen. Again, he emphasizes the political activist direction for the church. Now, what did he leave out of that rambling prayer for energy and direction? He left out any mention of a holy God or the Lord Jesus Christ. He was praying to a divine something, but it's impossible to know what that something is. Jesus likened the world and its emotions and desires to darkness because they are unable to accept the righteousness of God. When unrighteous things enter the church, they come as weapons of war to hurl damaging spiritual munitions from the church to help bring Satan's kingdom to fruition. Christ builds righteousness and holiness the kinds that are defined by God and found in the Bible, and Satan seeks to destroy them. One of the world's favorite sayings is, build back better. Well, to build back, you first must destroy what exists. Another of their sayings is, out of chaos, order. First chaos, then they will build their order. They are openly telling you their plan, so we should not be shocked when they bring it to pass, even from the church. In face of these assaults, we do not lay down and surrender, however. Our only option as loyal and obedient Christians is to use the weapons that Christ gave us to expose who they really are and bring as many of their people as possible to Christ. Jesus instructed us repeatedly on how to use our primary weapon. In John chapter 8, it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Truth is the primary weapon we are to use, and we are to use it freely and loudly. In Matthew 10.27, Jesus said, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. You see, truth is a very powerful weapon, and because it is so powerful, our enemies really hate it. They hate it so much, they can actually become dangerous when they hear it. Maybe that's why Jesus immediately followed that statement with the following. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We are to expect to be hated, and we are to expect the level of violence to escalate as the truth is told and repeated. People of the world really, really hate the truth, they will not hesitate to show just how much they do. We cannot hesitate to stand for the truth as soldiers of Christ. As his soldiers, we must be prepared for the consequences of waging war, even if those consequences come to us. So are we?
If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, or maybe even entertaining, please recommend it to someone who you know might benefit by it, or even someone who might not. Give it a thumbs up and a happy face or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Please pray for the podcast and for people to hear it and, you know, come to Christ. Underground Christian can be heard on a lot of platforms like the one you're listening, including Podbeam, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Blair FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. So there's no reason not to listen. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and get ready to do the hard and sometimes thankless work of God. But it's thankful for the people that you are doing it for and for Christ. 